Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Putin has made it very clear that he wants to reunite the Soviet Union and that he is not ethically constrained. There's no such thing as risk-free sanctions, but our risk tolerance has to rise in the face of an actual land war in Europe. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. There's the size of the economy is not super robust. Pennsylvania has thousands of structurally deficient bridges. The need has been pronounced for a while, and Joe Biden got it done. Bloomberg Sound On with with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Who says bipartisanship is dead? The House just passed billions to get your mail delivered on time by a more than three to one margin. Can Congress come together on anything else? We'll talk to the Republican sponsor of the post office bill, Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, as we look for other possible areas of agreement as well. Maybe even, a, say, a budget in the next few weeks. We have the signature panel in place Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are here on the fastest hour in politics. And later, a special conversation with Bloomberg's Emily Chang and Disney CEO Bob Chapek that you will only hear here on Bloomberg. First, let's start with an update on the markets and say hi to Charlie. Well, hello there, Joe Matthew. Lots going on this hour. Disney, the big business story. It's out with first quarter sales and earnings that handily beat analyst forecasts, boosted by its namesake theme parks. Subscribers to the flagship streaming service Disney Plus jumped to 129.8 million Disney shares after hours up now by 7.3%. As Joe mentioned, we'll be speaking with Disney CEO Bob Chapek at about 545 Wall Street time. Uber, out with revenue in the fourth quarter that beat analyst estimates as it recorded the most active users in its history. Uber, after hours, up by 5%. Big news out of Boston today. The Federal Reserve Bank of Boston says its next president will be Susan Collins, an economist at the University of Michigan, who will become the first black woman to lead one of the U.S. Central Bank's 12 districts. She earned a doctorate in economics at MIT. She replaces Eric Rosengren, who stepped down last year. Stocks higher, S&P extending yesterday's broad-based rally. We had uh, the S&P up today by 65 points, up 1.5%. The Dow up 305, up 9 tenths. NASDAQ up 295, up 2.1%. Ten-year yield, 1.94%. Spot gold right now, 18.33 the ounce. West Texas Intermediate crude up 3 tenths of 1%, 89.66 a barrel. I'm Charlie Palapaccio. Matthew is a Bloomberg Business Flash. All right, Charlie, we thank you. A lot to talk about, as always, after hours with Charlie Pellet and he will be back with more in about 15 minutes. Now, this will likely be the most underreported, I'm going to stick my neck out, underreported political accomplishment of the year, he states in February. The vote in the U.S. House today, 342 to 92, not to rename a post office, but to reform the U.S. post office. $57 billion overhaul relieves tens of billions of dollars in liabilities and helps to get your mail delivered on time. No wonder, I guess, it's popular with both 
Republicans and Democrats, and it looks like it's going to be a pretty easy win in the Senate, where it's now heading. Let's talk about it and extend the conversation to some other issues with Congressman James Comer, Republican from Kentucky. Congressman, welcome. You were last with us in December when the terrible string of tornadoes came through your state. It was a terrible time, and I know that a lot of this persists. You lost a lot. And before we get into politics, I wonder how, how the people of your district are doing. Well, thank you for having me on again. They're doing as well as can be expected. Uh, I think uh, the realization set in pretty early on that uh, a lot of the people were underinsured. Uh, mm-hmm. They weren't aware of the massive inflation costs of the building material right now. But uh, people are trying to re- rebuild. And uh, I think the overwhelming majority of people want to rebuild exactly where their homes were destroyed to begin with. So it's going to be a long recovery, but I think the people of West Kentucky are doing very well. Well, I'm happy to hear it. How long will it take for towns like Mayfield, where where the damage was so widespread, to rebuild? Is this years, Congressman? It's going to take years, unfortunately. I mean, you're talking about two towns, Mayfield and Dawson Springs, where probably 50 and 75 percent of their property tax base was wiped off the map. So... uh, it's going to be a while, and a lot of those businesses. Now, the businesses are a little different than the homes. They may not uh, rebuild in the same places. They may not rebuild. Period. The business yeah. is a harder, harder thing to replace. So it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a while, unfortunately, for the for the towns. What's the hardest thing to get lumber right now for rebuilding? Everything: roofing shingles, lumber, n- nails, screws. There's a shortage of everything, and it's people incredible. to actually build the homes. The the yeah. labor shortage. I mean, it's. Uh, cement, anything. Uh, I don't think uh, a lot of people outside of the construction industry realize uh, the shortages that are out there. I don't know if they're supply side, supply chain shortages or right. just production shortages. I have no idea, but it's it's very difficult to get the building materials they need right now. An endless housing demand, of course, in this country. Uh, Congressman, mm-hmm. are you getting the support you need from the federal government? So far, the federal government has done everything that it said it would. Uh, we, you know, I flew on Air Force One with President Biden. That's right. There, I was there the next morning. Uh, Biden was there a few days later, and uh, thus far, FEMA's done everything that uh, they promised they would do. But we've got a long way to go, and I'll, I'll knock on wood. But right now, I think the response from the federal and state government has been. Uh, very good. That's well, wonderful to hear. Uh, and, you know, we're not going to forget this story. We'd like to stay in touch with you throughout the year and, and hear how things are going. Absolutely. Uh, you Thank must, you. Congressman, be pleased with the vote on your legislation to reform the post office. You probably heard me mention you co-sponsored it uh, with Representative Carolyn Maloney, a rare bipartisan win uh, that I understand followed months of negotiations. The Oversight Committee you serve on, Postmaster General and the Union's. Uh, cats yes. and dogs and living together, Congressman. What's the lesson here it, for a divided Congress? Well, the lesson is it can be done. Uh, there has to be a will to do it. Now, there, you know, there's still going to be Republicans that are going to vote no on everything. I don't know if some of them even read the bill. I mean, this was a. At the end of the day, everybody has a horror story with the post office. But at the end of the day, everybody <laughs> needs the post office, and and most Republican districts are like mine. They have significant amounts of rural uh, areas and the rural areas are really more dependent on the post office and the urban areas. And I say that because you've got private companies that, that serves a lot of the mail needs in, in some of the bigger cities, but in the rural areas, the, the post office is all you got. If you order something from Amazon 
or UPS or FedEx in a lot of rural communities like the ones I represent, yeah, they deliver it to the local post office, and then the post office actually takes it to your house. The post uh-huh. office will deliver a package that's Amazon or UPS or FedEx. So, the you know, you, for anyone to say they they support privatizing the postal service, that's that's not even a viable option because not an nobody option for wants rural America. the post office. Right. It's not for rural America. So uh, we we worked not just with Louis DeJoy, who I think's done a good job. I think that he was, uh, uh, you know, the victim of a lot of uh, politicization. I think he was the victim of a of a lot of uh, unnecessary uh, criticism from people that criticized his reforms. But well, he was heavily later, criticized. We should know, Congressman, for our listeners, he this legislation actually came from his initial uh, set of proposals it, to reform it, the it post did. office, right? It does. So and did he write this bill, or did you write it with him? He he had a he wrote a bill, and we took it uh, as an outline and and made some changes because yeah. there are a lot of stakeholders. You've got the unions, but now to, to Louis DeJoy's credit, you know he's criticized for being a big Republican donor and everything. He worked with the unions on this bill, and there are four big unions, postal unions, like the rural letter carriers, the letter carriers, the you know, there, there's four big male unions, and they all overwhelmingly supported this bill. Uh, there are also a lot of private stakeholders in, in the post office. You've got big logistics companies like, for example, Pitney Bowes. Uh-huh. Uh, you've got big companies like International Paper who make all the envelopes and packages for for the Postal Service. You've got a lot of catalog companies, companies like Hallmark in in. Missouri, Hallmark is greeting And by cards. bringing all these big, parties together, how does this help people get their mail delivered on time more often? Well, the, the first thing we have to do is stop the hemorrhaging of cash. And the post office cannot continue to lose billions of dollars every quarter, which yeah. is what, what it was doing. So this made some reforms. It codified some reforms uh, for performance. It's invest in modern, uh, modernization of equipment. Uh, right now, we all know the growth in, in the mail is in package. So a lot of the packages are sorted by hand mm-hmm. at the post office. And this bill will provide funding to buy package sorting machines. If you'll remember, Postmaster DeJoy removed a lot of mail sorting machines. Quite that controversially at the time, yes. Yeah, 20 to 30% capacity. And, the, and what he was doing was he was... He was trying to utilize, if you have three mail sorting machines that are operating at 20% capacity each, you can get rid of two of them, and you've still yeah. got one that's operating at 60% capacity. Mm-hmm. So he And he shut down some mail sorting facilities, and that was really more controversial. So than these the will replace sorting those. Machines. Yeah. But what he's going to do with those facilities that are, that are owned by the government, like, for example, there's one in Paducah, Kentucky in my district, that's owned by the federal government. There are some mail sorting machines in Indiana. I'm sorry, some mail sorting facilities, buildings in Indiana that are owned by private companies that he felt like the government didn't get a good deal on the lease. When the lease runs out, he's not going to take them anymore. But the ones that the government already owns, that he moved the mail sorting machines out, he's going to put package sorting machines in them. They're going to be package sorting facilities. So, and this, uh, this is where your $57 billion dollars right. is going to. So, Congressman, Absolutely. we're getting down to the granular here. You're walking around the House with a win in your pocket. 
You guys have a great story to tell, Representatives Comer and Maloney and the Postmaster General and the unions. How do you how do you extend this to say the budget process that's going on right now or the the America competes bill where you could sit down in a room with people you don't necessarily agree with and generate a product that that everyone at least walks away happy with? Well, I feel like we were pretty transparent with how we negotiated this bill. And I think when you look at how the budgets are plastered together in Congress, there's no transparency there. We had a markup in committee. We talked about the bill in committee. Uh, there were endless meetings and negotiations with stakeholders and, and, and different people that had questions. And, uh, the bill was out there for, for months and months and months for the world to see. So people, if they got a call from someone concerned about a particular part of the bill, they could, they, we had time to answer the questions. The budgets are negotiated in closed rooms, smoke-filled rooms. There's no transparency. There's no debate. And, and that's what's wrong with Congress. I, I think yeah. the postal reform bill is a model of how it can be and how it should be and how it used to be. But what's going on now is so transparency is, uh, is your answer, though, having hearings, having public comment and maybe a little time to read the bill, Congressman. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what's wrong with so many bills. I heard Nancy Pelosi ban smoking up there, though. I don't know where these smoke filled rooms are. <laughs> I want to see this firsthand. Congressman, I appreciate your time and congrats on scoring some money for our post office. Congressman James Comer, Republican from Kentucky, and I'm happy to hear that the recovery is at least underway. Not to suggest that it is anywhere near being done after a very difficult December in that part of the country. Thanks for joining us on the Fastest Hour in Politics. I'm Joe Matthew. The panel's next. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Remember the old post office motto? Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. I just learned today that that's carved in granite over the entrance of the New York City Post Office on 8th Avenue and that it was taken from Book 8 of the Persian Wars by Herodotus. Who knew that? Did I? Was I the only one? I will say, even with the cutbacks, uh, my postal carriers, you know, speaking personally, my postal carriers from D.C. to Boston and back again have somehow always gotten the job done. I don't know if I'm just lucky, but as you were hearing in our conversation with Congressman James Comer, the agency is getting some badly needed investments, $57 billion. Yes, it's time to take the post office seriously again. It's unfair to ask a woman to be the wife of a mailman. You know, watch them get up every morning, strapping on that old mailbag, going out and hitting those mean streets, never knowing whether he's coming back or not. Right. Somewhere out there is a beagle with your name on it. Right? With apologies to Cliff Clavin, we assemble the sound on panel. He was on my mind all day. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis 
Jeannie, Democrats, as the congressman brought it up, have been highly critical of Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. He was a big Trump donor. He was accused of making it more difficult for people to vote by mail. Uh, This legislation was part of his plan. He is still in that job. Is this his redemption? It is. Cheers, Joe Matthew. I I love hearing from Cliff. Thank you. Um, You know, I I thought it was fascinating to listen to Representative Comer because to me, it was almost a master class. I'm going to play for my students and how legislation is done. And Hmm. Louis DeJoy is one of the people who got this going. When when you look at the legislation, one thing that strikes you is, you know, this has been since what, 2006, we've seen a bill addressing these problems with the post office. It saves $50 billion over 10 years. And more importantly, it has the support of 200 organizations and all the unions involved. That is an enormous feat. And it's bipartisan, as as you mentioned at the right. top. So to their credit, they got this done. And, you know, another thing he reminded me of as we're listening to, to the conversation is that we talk a lot about, you know, you know, the, the lack of bipartisanship and the differences between Repu- Republicans and Democrats. But he talked about the fact that the division is almost is often geographic, right? Rural areas have things in common. So upstate New York here near where I am versus, you know, other places in yes. New are very, very different. So you bring those people together, they can cross over that partisan line. I was thinking of you, Rick, as uh, the congressman was describing transparency, actually holding hearings. I could hear you saying regular order. Uh, is that as simple as as, as this story is? Or, or is this about something more unique? Because, well, the post office touches everyone. This is not, you know, a pie in the sky policy. This is something that's got to get done. Well, First of all, kudos to Congressman Comer and the people who supported this bill because crossing the aisle is never an easy thing to do, regardless of what the rules of the road are. So that's number one. Number two is that is why there's regular order. That is why you have committee (laughs) hearings so that you can figure out where the common ground is so that you can identify the problems in the bill. And that is why you have people who come to those committees to testify who are part of the, you know, sort of uh, uh, owners of this legislation once it gets implemented so that they can give you their comments because it's rare that, that, that people actually get to come to Congress and tell them what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's why it's designed the way it is. That's why they call it regular order, because this is the way it's supposed to be done every day. But he points out, and I think it's important that everybody understand, that's not how the majority of legislation gets done in Congress anymore, which is why you have these bipartisan screaming matches, because they don't know even what's in the bill until it's being, until the Congress people are being asked to vote on it. How about and that? that's not fair for anybody. Well, there's a lesson to be learned here. Obviously, uh, uh, Jeannie, you know, when you're talking about Democrats and Republicans who supposedly can't stand each other and can't work together, we obviously have an exception here. uh, And it's something that actually impacts people's lives. But I am assuming, tell me I'm wrong. This gets no publicity. We're talking about it here on this program. But this isn't Build Back Better. It's not uh, trillions of dollars on infrastructure. and And it's not terribly controversial. That's right. And, you know, to your point, you don't have screaming matches. You know, it's, uh, you know, those are the things that are going to get covered. And so it won't get a lot of coverage. And there are lessons to be learned, but it's difficult to apply those lessons yeah. to something as big as the budget. Because, of course, well, postal right. reform is much more narrow, as big as it is, than the budget. And in that case, they will not, to Rick's point, go to regular order. And that's why we're unfortunately yeah. going to see another continuing resolution as funding expires on the 18th. To be be clear this was a compromise uh genie progressives wanted more they wanted protections for instance for mail-in voting so they're you know all the parties involved did not get what they want is the, is that the lesson here 
It is the lesson. But again, I think, you know, they did, you did see people compromise, you know, on this, but the compromises were not as dramatic as they will be for the budget. I mean, we have to be clear on that. Those are big differences, domestic policy versus funding for national security and trying to bridge a gap that's at about 10 points at this point. Yeah. Does DeJoy keep his job, Rick, or, or should he? Yeah, he, I, I think there's got to be a reason to put him out, and these are terms, right? Mm-hmm. That's why they set them up the way they do, so they, they actually aren't predicated on partisan differences. Uh, but I would say, you know, just a comment about the, the process. You know, people fight hard in these committees. Uh, it yeah. gets angry. They're protecting themselves, but what comes out is usually the, the, the wisdom of Congress, and that's what you're looking for. I love it. Rick and Jeannie are with us for the hour, our signature panel. With fallout from the RNC centering Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, we're going to focus on that next. It's playing differently in different corners of the Capitol. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1. To New York, Bloomberg 1130. To Boston, Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Republicans in Washington do not all agree on the RNC's decision to censure Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. If you can get an answer on that or the whole matter of January 6th and how that should be described, we'll reassemble the panel next to consider the fallout to the resolution. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are up next. You know, sometimes it does not take a lot to make news here in Washington. Mitch McConnell made headlines yesterday by basically repeating what he already said about January 6th. But following the RNC's labeling of the insurrection as legitimate political discourse, his words take on new meaning. Let's let him finish what he's saying. Senate Minority Leader here when he was asked about it. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. That's what it was. McConnell also made clear he did not approve of the RNC censuring representatives Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. He said it's not what the RNC is there for to be picking winners and losers. Now, on the other side of the Capitol, and by the way, that generated its own stories yesterday. Things were a little bit less definitive on the House side and a lot faster. Have you seen this video of Kevin McCarthy running down the hall? Uh, ABC's congressional correspondent Rachel Scott tried to ask the minority leader of the House this very same thing about the RNC resolution describing, again, January 6th as legitimate political discourse. Here's how it went. You know what, make it a point in office. Come on, okay? It's not good. It's not good to go in. Whoa, whoa. Make, if you didn't hear what he said, make an appointment in my office. It's not good to ask questions in the hallway, and he's moving. So listen to this all over again. Okay. 
Alright, you know what? Make an appointment office to come up on time, okay? It's not good it's not good to do anything. Alright, yeah. Keep going though. Next cut. Come on. Here's Kevin McCarthy. You know what? Make an appointment office to come up on time, okay? It's not good it's not good to do anything. He's gone. He's gone. It wasn't so much what he said, albeit unusual to suggest an appointment since he regularly answers questions in the hallway. But no, it was the speed the gentleman from California showed with the form of an athlete. There is no way I could have caught up with him. It's been watched three million times on Twitter alone. And Rachel Scott's tweet with the video has been liked 37,000 times. Clearly inspiring. It makes you want to get out there and run to work and back, especially on a beautiful day like this in the nation's capital. And so we reassemble the panel now. Rick and Jeannie are with us this hour. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Chariots of fire in my mind as I watch this video, Jeannie. Um, I'm not sure if this works. Sometimes you pretend you don't hear a reporter. Sometimes you run down the hall. But what does it tell us about the different responses we got from the two Republican leaders, Jeannie Shanzana? Oh, I just love that music. You know, listening to him talk so fast, it was like when my son listens to podcasts on two times speed. I, they said, slow it we down, hear Joe. It three times. Yeah. I can't hear it. Um, you know, I, I think it speaks to the fact, number one, Mitch McConnell doesn't really care, quite frankly, what Donald Trump thinks. He he considers Donald Trump the reason he is not majority leader right now, number one. And number two, Kevin McCarthy, on the other hand, wants to be speaker and feels like Donald Trump is going to be in his way if he doesn't go down to Mar-a-Lago and, Lago and do what he did after January 6th. So they have a huge gap there. And of course, Mitch McConnell also feels like if Donald Trump keeps talking about 2020, he's not going to win the seats he needs to win to become majority leader. So he won't be majority leader again. So the <laughs> wow. incentive structure there is, is I think, the number one explanation. On top of the fact, to your point, Mitch McConnell's telling the truth about, you know, repeating what he said before. It's not that hard to do. And, of course, Kevin McCarthy has flipped on what he said right after January Wait, 6th. Jeannie just said a lot, Rick. What do you make of the uh, the different responses here? Is it just is it the two uh, men in the way they differ or their motivations as politicians. Yeah, it's a, it's it's kind of the old line, inconvenient truth, right? <laughs> those who are willing to embrace it and those who are willing not to, because uh, as, as Jeannie says, nobody really wants to be talking about this to begin with. But look, Mitch McConnell actually puts himself on the side of history and it is the uh, number one thing that I think voters would back him up on. I mean, there are only a small fraction, maybe in the last CNN poll I saw, 25% of people said, that the will of Congress should be overturned. 75% of our country says, when you get election results, you should you should have the will of Congress uh, accept them. So like, this is a, a binary decision that politicians are making, and I'd rather be on the 75% than the Trump 25% <laughs> every day of the week. Well, there's also the long term here, right? Mitch McConnell uh, seems to think here, Jeannie, that at some point it's going to be clear in history books what went on and he wants to be on the right side of history. Does, does Kevin McCarthy not think about it that way? 
That's right. I think Mitch McConnell has long held that we, as he said, we were all there. We all saw what happened. You can't go back on that. And I think Kevin McCarthy is thinking short term. He wants to be speaker. He thinks he's got a shot and he is concerned that Trump is in his way. And I thought it was fascinating, the statement that Donald Trump released about saying Kevin, sorry, Mitch McConnell doesn't speak for the Republican Party, which sets up this sort of battle between who does. And I, I agree with Rick. The problem is in the primaries, it's a small percentage of the more extremists that get out there that can speak to who the candidates will be. And that's a problem for Republicans. Well, I don't know how uh, Kevin McCarthy continues to manage this. I guess, you know, he's sort of waiting for the January 6th select committee to resolve. Rick, tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, But how long can you keep running down the halls like that without actually sitting for an interview? Well, I mean, he hasn't done a network interview since January of last year. So, I mean, there's a lot of running. I think the Olympic Committee is going to be like trying to sign him up because that guy's got speed. Uh, But like and he wears sneakers with his suit. There's something to that. There's something to that. I mean, it's an occupational hazard for him. Uh, and, and those questions aren't going to get any less, you know, fervent from the media. They, they now realize that they're under his skin. And this is the one thing reporters like most of all, uh, in contrast to, to people like John McCain, who used to slow down so the media could catch up to him. <laughs> right. I was like, Thank what a God. great day that was. Thank and, God for him. Yeah, I bet you love that. Uh, what does it mean, though, for him as as a future leader, Rick? There's, you know, a decision needs to be made here as well about whether you protect your own. Mitch McConnell doesn't want the RNC telling him what his members should or shouldn't be doing. Wouldn't that be an attractive quality when you're trying to become leader that he's going to have to stand for that election if Republicans take the House? Yeah, anytime you're talking about the RNC in an election year, there's something wrong, right? Because the RNC is supposed to be invisible. They're supposed to be the boots on the ground and doing these things. They're not actually supposed to be the issue in polling. And now there's going to be a lot of those issues, uh, you know, coming up in the, in the candidates, you know, town halls and things. Oh, do you agree with the RNC and what they've done here? <laughs> right. um, but at the end of the day, I mean, the one thing I would tweak on what Jeannie was saying about, you know, you got to watch out for these activists. If activists decided who the primary uh, winners were going to be in all these states, John McCain, for instance, would have never been elected to the United States Senate. The activists hated him there. But there's a much broader group of people. And part of what this controversy is doing is it's kind of waking them up saying, hey, you got to get in the game. If you want to keep your congressman or if you want to have somebody who's more mainstream, you better show up in these primaries. And so I think all this attention the RNC's given this issue may actually result in that backfiring against these activists who are running in so many districts right now. I think I asked you both a couple of days ago how you felt about it. Is this helping Liz Cheney's chances to be reelected, Jeannie? You know, I I think it potentially could. Um, I I think it's still going to be up to the people in the primary. And, you know, it may, to Rick's point, get people who otherwise would not have have incentive, Republicans, say moderate Republicans in Wyoming, to get out and to vote in the primary. And that'll help her enormous amount. She also has got some big wigs coming in to fundraise for her. Not that she needs them that much. So I do think it's going to, you know, I, I, I guess my bottom line, is with with Liz Cheney, I don't feel like she needs much help in this. She is a formidable force, and I think she has taken this on because she feels like win, lose, or draw, she's on the right side of history. What's your thought on that, Rick Davis, Liz Cheney for re-election? Yeah, and look, I mean, she's in a fight of her life. It's going to be hard. It doesn't help that the RNC, you know, is saying, oh, well, we'll support a primary opponent against you. Uh, right. the, the deck just keeps getting stacked against her. 
I think her entire future is predicated on how successful her participation is on this January 6th commission at this stage. I mean, the reality is that's the future. We don't know what that's going to look like by the end of this summer, and that will influence the outcome of her primary, I think, significantly. As we spend time with Rick and Jeannie here on Bloomberg Sound On, I will let you know that we're about three minutes away from an important interview with the CEO of Disney, Bob Chapek, and I'm going to be curious to hear what he has to say and, and talk with you guys about it because the news from the theme parks uh, is is huge. Uh, you know, when we start talking about mask mandates, uh, vaccine or mask, another one today, New York State, Kathy Hochul, this is getting to be interesting. People are starting to get back to their lives, and we'll have a little bit more color on that coming up from uh, Bob Chapek, who's going to be speaking with uh, Emily Chang. Tomorrow's the big inflation report. We've been hearing a heck of a lot about it this week. Uh, interesting uh, for this White House, Jeannie, because this could cut uh, either way as as we consider the inflation coming out of the consumer price index tomorrow. It, it could. And, and of course, the, the, they have had some good news um, on the jobs numbers, GDP in the last few mm-hmm. days, few weeks. So they they want to keep strong. that up. Yeah. So see how if they're able to continue that streak. They're well, it's interesting. They haven't so. been out ahead of it like they were uh, potentially bad news on jobs. Right. I wonder if uh, if if that's going to be interpreted the same way. Yeah, and it's a good question. You know, I was wondering and I was trying to peek and see, are we getting, you know, them sort of saying this could be bad news? We haven't mm-hmm. heard much of that. And so maybe that's <laughs> I don't know how to play that one, Joe. Yeah, <laughs> because, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, to see the Rick Davis, the way they got out ahead of the jobs report, thinking that it might be bad. Uh, there are there's every expectation that this will show inflation justifying a continued Fed tightening tomorrow. The markets are going to be obsessing over this. Is, this, is it because it's not as, as much of a household conversation as a jobs report? Yeah, I think inflation is their kryptonite, right? They don't even want to get near that stuff. So and, just don't talk about it. And so don't talk about it. Let it let it sit. Don't draw attention to it. It's going to every time you talk about inflation in this administration, it's going to be a bad day. And so it's going to be a bad day no matter what. <laughs> what do you think, Jeannie, then? Is it more about getting CEOs to the White House to talk about supply chains or just to Rick's point, just move on? Well, well, yeah, and the, getting CEOs to the White House to, and also talking about jobs, 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 they've had been, been good in terms of the creation of jobs, particular mm-hmm. sectors they want to talk about. So they really all are all focused on, you know, let's let's talk about, to James Carville's point, what we did right. And let's sort of yeah. leave aside the things that are troubling us. And inflation is the big one. Well, and he's got a cabinet that's good at that. You're going to see the Brian Deese interviews, right? You're going to see Gina Raimondo, who was on Bloomberg today, talking about supply chains, computer chips. Maybe the president will make some remarks. Uh, they've certainly been buttoned up on the communications front when it comes to, to this, uh, you know, at, ever since the old transitory line. Rick and Jeannie, stay with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We now join Emily Chang for her conversation with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. This is Bloomberg. Welcome to our global television and radio audiences. I'm here with Disney CEO Bob Chapek on the heels of the company's first quarter earnings. We're going to talk about everything from the streaming wars to theme parks, the ongoing pandemic, and even the metaverse. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with this month marking two years with you as CEO. Bob Iger has officially ridden away from the happiest place on earth, and I want to know how you're feeling. Do you feel like your strategy is clicking and that things are working? Well, I think as evidenced by our most recent quarter, everything's falling into place. 
You know, we're filled with optimism here at Disney. We're at the point where we're just at the start of the last year of our first 100 and the inflection point for the start of the next 100. And I think if you look at our parks business, you look at our uh, media business, all fueled by the great content that our internal storytellers get to tell, uh, we're full of optimism. We think that we've got a lot of energy and momentum. We've got a vision for the future a vision where we're going to appeal directly to our audience uh, using technology and great storytelling. And uh, we really think that it's going to be a more exciting next 100 years than even our stellar first 100 years. Give us some color on what's driving the burst in subscriber growth at Disney Plus compared to the slowdown last quarter. Well, you know, we had said for a long time that it's not going to be a linear growth quarter to quarter on Disney Plus, that there were going to be some quarters a little higher, some quarters a little lower. And it's really almost directly a function of what the new content is that's flowing into the service. And obviously that content was impeded uh, and made a little choppy uh, even more by the fact that, you know, we had COVID and it interrupted our production cycles. But as uh, we stated last earnings and this earnings as well, is that that flow becomes a little more steady, a little bit more predictable, a little bit more optimal during the second half of uh, this year. And we expect that uh, um, we're going to actually add more subs in the second half of the year than the first half of the year. So we're very encouraged by that. Uh, again, it'll still be choppier than a, a perfect linear line. But, uh, you know, uh, when you have great storytelling and uh, great brands like we do, uh, it's, it's going to draw a lot of people across the globe. So we're excited about that. Now, you said it was hard to get people to the theater for family movies. And I wonder when you see that changing and what that means for the next few family titles. Well, we're very carefully watching the return to theaters. And obviously, when you have something like Spider-Man that comes out into the marketplace and it does, you know, gangbusters numbers, we're very encouraged about that. You know, so let's call it the 18 to 34 uh, target uh, uh, demo. That seems to, if you've got the right movie, big blockbuster, great film, uh, based on a franchise that's back. Uh, we are a little more concerned, though, about the family films and some of the films that appeal to the over 35 audience. Uh, but we're very, very lucky in that um, uh, we have the ability to take our films to all the audiences on Disney+. And uh, we're encouraged, we hope, that the family audience comes back to theaters. Uh, but we believe that even with a title like Encanto, which, as you know, has proved to the world that we can build a Disney franchise uh, uh, on, on, on the back of Disney+, Plus, uh, because our merchandise, licensed merchandise, spiked as soon as it came out on Disney+. Plus. The music went from, I think it was 197 on the top 200 in Billboard to number one for multiple weeks in a row. We can build a franchise on Disney+, Plus, so we'd love for Theatrical to come back for family movies. Uh, we hope it does, but uh, if it doesn't, we, we know that we're very secure in being able to use our own platform, Disney+, Plus, to help do that. We're here with our Bloomberg Television and Radio audiences with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. I want to talk about parks in more detail. You hit some all-time records with revenue there, but attendance is still, you know, lower or in line, depending on the park that you're talking about. What's the outlook ahead as Omicron wanes? Are you preparing for new variants? Do you see hitting new records in attendance, or is it all about revenue? 
Well, we're, we're preparing for anything. I think if the last two, two years have taught us anything, it's to remain flexible. But uh, if we have a focus on our guest, we believe that it's going to uh, turn out just, just fine. I think one of the reasons why we've had such a recovery in demand and attendance at our parks is a function of the fact that consumers, our guests, our fans trust us. Not only do, do we deliver great experiences and tell great stories, but they trust us. And we're going to move very slowly when it comes to attendance uh, increases because we feel that we want to be very, very responsible. And some of the reasons why we don't have max capacity right now is that we still haven't turned on all of the live entertainment that uh, we've got at the parks was, as, as you know, is a really big component of a great Disney experience. But we're moving slow on that because we want to make sure that as you densify people, that our guests feel very comfortable. And we do surveys all the time in terms of what our guests feel is the appropriate density. And so we're metering that. But I must say that the operating performance of parks uh, using that approach has been extraordinar extraordinarily great. As you know, in our domestic parks, we had a record uh, uh, a quarter this this past quarter uh, we're very very excited about that because even without being able to you know maximize the uh, density inside the park because of everything I mentioned uh, right. we're getting great performance and and so that I think that says it also no matter what set of circumstances or situations you know the world throws at us at Disney because of our 195,000 unbelievable cast members they find a way to make our guests have magical memories that last a lifetime. Now, Disney is leaning into the metaverse, and I'm wondering if you can give us more details on your vision. How could Disney offer products that fit into this? Is it about Lucasfilm? Is it about industrial light and magic, for example? Paint the picture. It, it's, a, it's about all those things. If you step back from it, regardless of where you want to call it, we believe that there's a world where we can add a third dimension of storytelling. I call it sort of a third, a three-dimensional canvas so that we can take the folks that make our great television shows and make the great music and make the great movies and the great theme park attractions. And what happens if you enable them, you, you give them the degrees of freedom to paint on that third dimension and don't necessarily constrain it with you know, typical definitions about what's a book, what's, what's a, a recording, what's a movie, and you let them kind of explore and use both the physical worlds that Disney is uniquely postured to create in our theme parks, but also take the media and the digital and the virtual pieces, which we also have shown that we can do, and use Disney Plus as an opportunity to bring those two things together so we can tell stories in that third dimension. I think it's a great opportunity for us. I think it's the next great horizon for Disney. I think it's the next great horizon in entertainment. And I don't think anybody's as situated as well as the Walt Disney Company is to have our creative geniuses work on that to tell the kind of stories that guests will expect in this new modern world. You've said you're investing heavily in international local content. Give us some specifics. What does that mean for markets like China and India, especially in light of Netflix's recent hit Squid Game? What's going to drive growth in some of these other markets? Well, in, in many of the markets, obviously, you know, we've got global titles that have world, worldwide appeal, whether it's, you know, Lucas or Star Wars or Marvel or Disney. But in addition to that, we, we found out in our brief two-year uh, journey on direct-to-consumer that the localized content in some of these territories is extraordinarily important. And we announced that we were doubling our content uh, uh, slate 
internationally. And as a result, we're finding that that now can be a very major driver. It's not just our great global franchises. Those certainly are a big piece of it. In some markets, it's sports, but really those localized productions, and we just had an organizational uh, change here at Disney that's really going to accommodate so that we can shepherd some of those developments and keep a closer eye on them. But that is really going to be a major driver for us in those uh, uh, local territories. And we're hoping that we've got the ability to have some of those actually flow backwards and become big global franchises as well. So we're, we're all in on local productions and uh, we've got the experts to do it inside each market. Okay, I got 30 seconds, Bob. Any update on a sports betting partner for ESPN? Well, as you know, we believe that that, uh, that aspect of the business is increasingly important uh, for the younger audience who wants to lean forward and engage in sports, not just sit back passively, and we want to enable that. We're bullish about the future of sports at Disney, okay. and uh, whether it's the metaverse or whether it's sports uh, betting, we're, we're, we're all in. Bob Chapek, CEO of Disney from the lot, thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to toss now back to all of our global outlets. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg Sound On as we listen to Disney CEO Bob Chapek after the earnings report. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano still with us in our remaining moments this hour. Pretty interesting to hear Bob Chapek talk about the theme parks. That's kind of what I was listening for. Uh, that division, parks experiences and consumer products generated $72 billion in revenue. Is that even right? Uh, Jeannie, does that mean that mask mandates work or that people are just getting on with their lives? I, I think both. I think people want to get back uh, to their lives, uh, you know, which which sort of uh, goes along with these six Democratic governors this week alone saying people are ready to move on. We're going to curb these mask mandates. And I think we're hearing some of that in Emily's interview with Bob Chapek. We heard from New York today, uh, Rick. This has been you know, a series of Democratic-led states that have been kind of getting on the the bandwagon, if I should use that term, to get rid of the mask mandates and leave it to, to local jurisdictions. Is that going to be a nationwide model in about five minutes? Well, I, I think the bandwagon they're getting on is the Republican governors have already done it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's nationwide. I mean, I think everybody has sort of had it with uh, COVID restrictions. And the good news is that's coming at a time when hopefully these these COVID numbers are coming down. But I think the Disney test, you know, where park uh, attendance is doubled, uh, is a good test. I mean, people going out and they're 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 taking the risks. Uh, but they're managing those risks by by you know being careful. So uh, I think I think the return to some level of normalcy is something everybody, regardless of your party, uh, is looking forward to. And uh, and it sounds like governments are now starting to take that seriously. And and hopefully it'll depoliticize what is otherwise a public health crisis. And that's a good thing for all of us. Seven point two billion, by the way, for that division. I thought for some reason that seemed like a little bit too much money. But I wonder what it means for businesses going forward. I mean, if we're seeing this kind of growth already now, is the reopening story real by the end of this year? It seems like it. And I thought Bob Chapik was really clear on the fact that they are still focused and have learned a lot over the last two years on managing risk. And so this is what we are all going to have to do going forward. God forbid there is another outbreak. Outbreak, But to, you know, to your conversation with Rick just a moment ago, the White House team is not on board with some of these Democratic so governors. Yeah. When does that happen? Well, that's the question. The CDC still coming out today and saying that this is going too fast. They don't recommend taking off these masks. So the confusion and the tension between the White House on some of this and these governors, Democratic and Republican, and 
public opinion polls very, very real. And I think it's going to create some confusion in terms of what people are doing. Rochelle Walensky says they're they're taking another look at this. Rick, do you suspect the CDC pops up with new guidance imminently? You know, I think this is a risk for them, right? I mean, like they keep changing guidance throughout this. I know it's a moving target, but it has undermined some of their credibility. And the more change they make, the less credibility they have. I mean, it's a real, hmm. you know, bind that they find themselves in. And uh, so we'll see where they go from here. But I think more and more fewer uh, ordinary Americans are actually paying attention to them. And that's, that's, and that's issue, dangerous. Though. That's the problem, Jeannie, right? You don't want to have to change the story back again. That's right. And they've had, they've been there. They've done that before. They don't yes. want to do it again. But of course, now you have a position where we are hearing as citizens conflicting messages from various levels of government. That is very problematic. And it creates it this tension between science and politics. Jeannie Shenzano and Rick Davis, our signature panel. Thanks to both of you for the insights, as always, here on Bloomberg Sound On. We'll take another swing at things tomorrow and see what the news is at this time. February is Black History Month. Every day this month, we're celebrating significant moments in U.S. Black history. And it's our chance to do that now. Our installment from February 9th. Here's Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in black history in 1995, Bernard Harris Jr. becomes the first African-American astronaut to take the spacewalk. As payload cool, commander thanks. on space shuttle Discovery STS-63, Harris served on the first flight of the joint Russian-American space program. Along with C. Michael Fold, the two men tested modifications to their spacesuits so they could keep spacewalkers warmer in the extreme cold of space. And while at NASA, Harris did clinical investigations of space adaptation. He also developed in-flight medical devices to extend astronaut stays in space. Throughout his career, Harris has logged more than 438 hours and traveled over 7.2 million miles in space. He's now the CEO of the National Math and Science Initiative. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Renita, thank you. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Thanks for spending the fastest hour in politics with us here on Sound On. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.